back to Alive. This is Christina Redko. Today in the show, we'll continue our conversation with Douglas Tallamy, professor of entomology at the University of Delaware. Doug wants to spread his vision of the homegrown national park to the entire world. And I started joking. He said, well, I want to re-landscape the whole country. And then I realized, that's, that's not a joke. That's exactly what I want to do. That was my vision then. You know what my vision now is? I want to re-landscape the whole world. Because we've got biodiversity loss everywhere. And it's simply because we're using the wrong plants and we've taken the plants away. So we've got to put the, more of the right plants back all over the place. Also in this episode, please enjoy Sounds of the Forest. One. We, we couldn't do the festival because of COVID. We had to postpone the festival to this year. And in place of the festival, we wanted to maintain that, that idea of a connection to nature, which we feel that the festival allows people to experience. So we launched um, a global sound project called Sounds of the Forest. And we invited people across the world to go to their local forest or woodland or area of trees and record a minute of, of the sounds of nature, the sounds of the forest around them, just on their phone. So it felt like a very inclusive project. Anyone can do it. And it was just incredible, the response we got. I mean, I, I just think we tapped into a, a, a real moment in time, exploring new areas of, of um, natural beauty around where we live that we may not have explored previously. So I think it really tapped into that moment where people heard nature more and experienced it and appreciated it. And we just had sounds pouring in from all over the world. The project continues. We're in across six continents, more than 70 countries, had thousands of recordings. You just heard Hayley from the UK. When you hear the number one, two and so forth, just before we played the sound of a different forest. Try to guess where each forest is located, then check the podcast show notes for the response. Two. Doug will now discuss his latest book, The Nature of Oaks. Which is why I wrote this book. An oak is not just a tree, it's a home. It's a whole community of organisms. And without it, you lose that community. He describes the oak as a home. Then he describes the special relationship that blue jays have with oaks. Three. There's a very interesting relationship between blue jays and oaks. Actually, between all jays and oaks, but around here in Ohio, it's the blue jay. They both evolved at the same time and in the same place in Southeast Asia about 65 million years ago. Jays uh, started using acorns as food for the winter, uh, but they, they do it in a way that actually helps the oak tree. So they take an acorn and they fly sometimes up to a mile away from the tree and they tap that acorn beneath the surface of the, of the soil. And the idea is they'll go back in the wintertime and have something to eat. Uh, when the, there's uh, a year that the oaks produce a lot of acorns, a single jay can bury 4,500 acorns. But they only remember where one in four of those acorns is, which means they've just planted 3,300 oak trees. And they did it without wrecking the acorn. There are lots of things that eat acorns, turkeys and a lot of other birds and squirrels and deer and ducks and but they eat those acorns. It's dead. Mm -hmm. They chop it all up. 
So um, jays help oaks become the tree that moves farther and faster than any other tree on, on the planet because they disperse the seeds so far. Four. Well, you know, we discovered that oaks are important in North America because we made a list of every plant genus in the entire country, and we looked up host plant records. So which, which ones of those genera were supporting the most species of caterpillars? And oaks turned out oaks are number, number one. Which are the trees that produce most caterpillars in other parts of the world? We, I mean, that's a great question, and you were the first person to ever ask me that. We have to make a list like that for every country in the world. That's mm -hmm. what I want to do before I retire. We're working on England right now. We want to do Germany. We want to do all of Eurasia. Africa's going to be harder because the host plant records won't be as good. Mm -hmm. South America's going to be harder because there's so many plants down there. Oaks are also a keystone plant. Five. And keystone plants. Now remember the, the Roman arch, the stone in the middle is uh, called the keystone. And if you take the keystone out of the arch, the arch collapses. Well, I'm calling them keystone plants because if you take these plants out of the local food web, the food web collapses because they're making most of the food. Just 5% of our, our native plants are making 75% of the caterpillar food that drives our food webs. 14% of our native plants are making 90% of the caterpillar food that drives our food webs. So think of the keystone plants in your yard as if they are the two by fours in the ecological house that you are building. They're essential for your house to stand up. You can't build a house out of, out of wallpaper. They're not the only thing your ecological house is built out of, but uh, they're a necessary thing. Six. Question is no longer simply are natives better than, than non-natives in terms of supporting the life around us. On average, they certainly are. Uh, but there are actually a lot of natives don't contribute all that much to local food webs. So let's focus on, on those keystone plants that, that do, the ones that are really driving the life that is out there. They're certainly better than benign plants that aren't doing much and much better than those ecologically destructive ornamentals we have brought in that become invasive species. I get an email once in a while from somebody saying, don't you know the ginkgos, ginkgo biloba from Asia, actually grew in North America 7 million years ago. That makes them native. That means we can plant them and everything will be great. Well, yes, I do know that ginkgos grew in North America 7 million years ago. We can argue about whether that makes them native today, but I'm not going to have that argument because that's not, that's not the metric anymore. It's not whether they're native or not. It's whether they're productive or not, whether they're doing anything or not. I don't care whether ginkgos grew on the moon or not 7 million years ago. They produce zero caterpillars in our landscapes today, and that's what, what counts. So they're there. They're occupying space, but they're not supporting the local food web. What is the best plant? is one of, one of our oaks. 557 species of caterpillars in the mid-Atlantic states. That's 557 species of bird food in the mid-Atlantic states and over 950 species of caterpillars nationwide. There's no other plant genus that comes close to that uh, in terms of, of productivity. Seven. You describe in the nature of oaks that we have all these global campaigns about planting trees to reduce the carbon and all that. And very often people prefer to do with fast-growing trees. Right. And you make the point that we should also do that with slow-growing trees such as oaks. For two reasons. The fast-growing trees grow fast and die fast, and then what happens to the carbon? Right back up in the mm -hmm. atmosphere. So that's not a long-term solution. It's a very temporary solution. Now, if you're growing those trees for, for uh, biofuel, 
that's a different story. You're going to use it as fuel. But if you're growing it just to, to capture carbon out of the atmosphere, you want the longest lived and, and densest trees to do that so that they, so that the individual trees hold the carbon for hundreds of years. And then all during that time, they're pumping the carbon into the soil with their roots. And that's a long-term effect. And once it's in the soil, it'll stay there for many thousands of years. It's very stable once it's in the soil. I don't know where the idea they, they grow in fast growing plants uh, for, for carbon capture came, came into being because, and they, they typical, typically plant uh, monoculture, hybrid poplars. They do grow fast. Then it becomes a, you know, a, a, a monoculture, which is very, uh, it's not supporting a lot of biodiversity. I know they have a lot of these, these poplar plantations in Oregon along the, the um, Columbia river but they're essentially growing it in a desert. It doesn't belong there. It's irrigated. So it's not helping any of the local biodiversity either. Eight. Doug also questions how most of us view conservation. And this epitomizes, I think, our society's view of conservation. We see it as a form of entertainment. It was, it was Teddy Roosevelt's reasoning for making the national park system. We want to save these wonderful places so the future generations can uh, enjoy them. And it truly is uh, a form of entertainment, but it's much more important than that. We need to save nature so that we have future generations, not just so that we can entertain them. A little bit more urgent. Nine. We've also assumed that humans and nature cannot coexist. And we talked about this. If we restrict conservation just to places where we don't have a lot of humans, we're going to fail because those places are too small and too disconnected from each other. David Quammen has an excellent analogy between a Persian rug and an ecosystem. This is a functional Persian rug. That is not 71 Persian rugs. That's 71 rug fragments, none of which are acting like a Persian rug. And that's what we've done to our ecosystems. The UN designates biosphere reserves as places of ecological significance. I hate that. I hate that language because it suggests they're places on planet Earth with no ecological significance. Not so. Every square inch of the planet has ecological significance, including our yards, including our corporate landscapes, even, even including our, our agriculture. 10. So we need to glue our rug back together again by putting the plants back, particularly those keystone plants. We're not just building biological carters that connect viable habitat with each other. We're going to rebuild viable habitat where it doesn't exist at all right now, where we live, where we work, where we play. In other words, we're going to start to share our spaces with nature for the first time. More and more people are realizing that, you know, these are, these are important issues. That's how we make the change. It's going to come from us. This, is, this biodiversity crisis is a global crisis, but it has a grassroots solution. It's you and me that is going to solve this. Thank you for listening. Please share, subscribe, support, and rate this show and all those amazing things you do with podcasts. Just go to alivepodcast.net. Engage with Alive by recording your questions into pod inbox forward slash alive. This show celebrates the wonders of being alive.